Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast that explores topics of interest to people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Well, hello, and thank you for spending some of your time today to listen to our podcast. I'm glad that you're here, and I hope that there's something in this episode that touches you in some way. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Aaron Reed. He is the author of a new addiction memoir titled Another in the Fire. In the book, Aaron describes his descent into addiction, how he got involved with smuggling drugs, and his experience in a Colombian prison where he ultimately got sober and started his journey of recovery. But before we get into the episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. If you're seeking a tangible way to maintain accountability and prove sobriety to loved ones, you have to try Soberlink. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, they've created a remote alcohol monitoring system that revolutionizes the way people document sobriety. The system includes a breathalyzer and uses artificial intelligence to display your test results in a calendar format, helping you analyze your habits and prove to yourself and others that you are, in fact, not drinking. It even has real-time results, facial recognition, and tamper detection, so no one will question the validity of your results. Soberlink and I have created a guide called Five Tools and Strategies for Those on a Secular Path to Recovery, that you can find at Soberlink.com slash BBS. So if you're ready to take the next step in your recovery journey, mention the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast when ordering Soberlink, and you'll get $50 off their device. And now, episode 253, Another in the Fire. Thank you so much for being here. It's nice to have you. Welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you, John. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for your time and your interest. Well, I really enjoyed the book. It's it's nice to read something that's so well read. I have to tell you, I, I'm not a very good writer. I liked, I, I've been told I was a good writer when I was uh, in high school, but my skills never improved beyond that. So when I read something that is written so well, it just, it just blows me away that how, how does, how do you do that? I mean, every, every paragraph was just so well thought out and planned. It just seemed and every, it just flew so flowed so nicely. I just really enjoyed it. But I thought what we would do, if you don't mind, is just kind of go through your story through the book. And I I do have some questions and some things that I noticed as I was reading it that I'll I'll probably ask you. But just in short, your your story begins, uh, first of all, you start the book with with an arrest that happens in in an airport in uh, Columbia. And uh, it was a pretty intense situation. Uh, there was a dog there that smelled something on you, and they pulled you away and hustled you off to prison eventually. But then you you go back and, to the beginning, and the story really started uh, in San Francisco. And at that time, you were working as a missionary at a church, and you met someone, and you got married. And it seemed to me that at that point, you just had a normal life. And my question when I, cause you did, your life went totally not normal, not too far after that, but what, was there anything before we met you in San Francisco that would have indicated that you might have an addiction problem later on in life? Sure. That's a good question. To answer that, we would have to go back to my university days. 
I went to school and got a, uh, a BA in written communication from Eastern Michigan University way back in the day. So we're going back 30 years. And um, yeah, I was, I was a recreational drug user in, in, at university. And uh, that was, um, yeah, the friends, the circle that I, that I the social circle that I, I remained in throughout my university days, um, recreational drugs were plentiful. And so it was, it was the norm. So I didn't, I didn't run into any severe addictions back then. Uh, it was, it was, like I said, it was recreational, but that might have indicated uh, the problems that I later on experienced in life. Okay. And so what happens then is you, you're in San Francisco, uh, you meet someone, you fall in love, you get married, you um, become a missionary at this church and you take a trip to India and then after after this, you decide that you're going to get a job in Cambodia. And I was wondering, was there something about that visit to India that put in your mind this idea that you wanted to go work abroad? Or did, was that something that was already in your brain? I think you mentioned that you weren't really happy with American culture anyway. My international, international exposure uh, happened uh, at a very young age. When I, was, when I was at university, my parents were working as international educators, and they went to Singapore. They went to Singapore in 90, uh, 1990, I think it was. And they stayed there for six years. They were teaching in the international community. And they would fly me over for the summers. And so I, I spent summers in Singapore, just the general ge geographic area there in Asia. And that was my first real exposure to the international community. I see. Okay, so that's what had in your mind to do this, to, to move over uh, to Cambodia. And you went to work at a school teaching over there. Sure. Yeah. And previous to that, I had also taught in Japan as an international educator. So I had travel in my blood and uh, I've always had a, a real uh, fascination and, and lust for travel and international experience. Okay. And so when you, when you moved to there and you, and you, you went to Cambodia shortly after you got married, okay. yes. she quickly became dissatisfied. She wasn't real happy. I don't know if it was that quickly. Maybe it was a couple of years that she started feeling like she'd she was um, impatient with what was going on in Cambodia? Yeah. Um, it, when you relocate yourself to, to a brand new culture and a brand new country, there's a lot of adjustments, of course, uh, that need to be made and a lot of new experiences. And some of those will always be difficult. Um, it takes a lot of acclimation to finally get the rhythm of, of a new life in a new country. And um, when we moved to Cambodia, um, I, I had already garnered a, a, an intense fascination with that culture. And so when I got hired to teach in the international school there, um, I dove in headfirst. And uh, I, I was very happy and very pleased. But I was also supported by, by English-speaking people. Having worked in, in the international school, everyone spoke English. And so my transition into that culture was very easy. Um, the transition for my wife was not not so easy, and so she, yeah, she she was struggling a little bit, and um, she she eventually missed her family is what it came down to. You know, her family was back in San Francisco. I would teach throughout the year, and then in the summers we would journey back to San Francisco to to reconnect with family and friends. But it was a it proved to be a pretty difficult transition for my wife at the time. Mm -hmm. And when you first when you first were over there and you were teaching at this school. You were doing well, and it seemed like it seemed like life again was normal. Um, 
you were doing well in your job and you seemed to enjoy it. And am I right that at some point a friend, um, this is how I kind of remember it. You met a friend and it was like somebody that was more like someone he could party with, but you had this idea in your head for some reason after meeting him that you wanted to smoke pot. You wanted to go get some pot. Right. <laughs> what, right. what was that? What, why right. was that? Why'd that suddenly come into your head to do that? That was, um, I, I had just come back from the States and I was there alone and my wife had remained to spend more time in the States with the family. So I had journeyed back to Cambodia to Phnom Penh by myself and uh, I was jet lagged and it was in the middle of the night. And I, I was all wired and everything. And I thought, oh, a little come down. Right. I can use a little come down. And you remember right that from your, from your college days. It was like, sure. yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So, and I hadn't smoked pot in, in years, many years. And so I, I, you know, sitting there in the house and, and I'm all agitated and wired up because I'm jet lagged. And, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to go out and get some weed. And so, so I walked across uh, Hun Sen Park near the park where we lived. And I went into the ghetto where I, I knew where the ghetto was. And I thought, yeah, I can go over there and score some pot. So I went over there. And, you know, being 3 a.m. or whatever it was, the place is in full swing. You know, you've got, you've got drug dealers everywhere. You've got pimps. You've got the prostitutes doing their thing. Everyone's hustling on the street. So I, I uh, spied a little group of people over there that I thought could some, be somewhat approachable. So I went over, and, and there's, remember, there's, no, there's a very serious language barrier going on. So I went up and, you know, asked for some pot, and the, the guys are looking at me like, what are you talking about? And so I pantomimed smoking a pipe, Right. And so then, you know, they, they get the message. So one guy reaches into his pocket and he gives me a little baggie. I give him the money and off I go. So I go back to the house and I'm, I'm ready to, to smoke my, my pot. And I open the baggie and a bunch of ice crystals fall out. And I had never smoked ice before. And I, I, at the time, I wasn't even sure what it was. You know, I didn't know what the substance was. So I, I was so bent on getting high that I didn't really care. I'm like, okay, we'll see what this does. So I put the crystals in the pipe and lit up and bam. Wow. That is, was it. Is ice methamphetamine? Is that what it is? That's right. Okay. And yeah, what a, what a decision. And who would have thought? Who would have thought? Because that really put you on a whole trajectory of addiction and got you got you to eventually speaking with me on this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I remember... Um, I don't know if it's like this for everybody, but that first hit and I was gone. There was, there was no looking back. And I finished that, you know, my portion that I had just purchased, I finished it. And right when I was right, when it was finished, bam, I was right back out on the street looking for the next one. Yeah. And it seemed as, you know, as I was reading the book, it's, it's like, that was almost a constant thing. I mean, constant, you would be um, smoking uh, like all the time, it seemed um, just part of just to keep you going. And, and you would be up for like long t- periods of time. Is that right? You, is it like, you know, I mean, days you, without, without sleep? Um, days. And yeah, it, it, at least for myself, I'm not, again, I'm not sure I can't speak for other people who had experiences experiences with this type of drug um but for me i smoked until i literally collapsed and sometimes that would be you know for prolonged periods lasting up to three four or five days so now so you so you you did that and then what i found what was really interesting to me to learn about was the culture around these bars and the women in the bars and 
So you went to a bar and there was a woman there that was especially beautiful. You were attracted to that you ended up having a relationship with. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what, what about that? If you can tell that story about meeting her and that relationship and, and, and that part of your story. Okay. Um, the, the nightlife scene in Phnom Penh um, centers around um, prostitution. Um, it's a very sad, sad existence for the women there in that country. Um, being, a, being a developing country, effective education is not offered um, to the widespread population. And so what happens then is uh, the young women that are raised in Phnom Penh, they, they, they get older and they're, they're lacking a formal education of any sort. And so what, what ends up happening is they, they end up uh, having to choose between prostitution um, to support their, their children or their families or working in the garment industry. Which, which is the euphemism for sweatshops. And so given that choice, um, it's, you know, those, those women are between a rock and a hard place. And so every time you go out in Phnom Penh, um, at least um, every time I went out with my friends, um, that's where we would end up. We would end up down in the red light districts, drinking beers and, and doing whatever, hanging out. And um, yeah, the, the prostitution scene there is, is widespread, unavoidable. And so, you know, um, they call them taxi girls and the taxi girls work in the bars and um, they are employed there to pour drinks. They're employed there to light cigarettes for the customers and they're employed there to um, pretty much push themselves to the limits of of what they are willing or not willing to do. And everything is money. It's money driven. And so I was out in the bar that night and I met that woman and, um, that was, uh, but by that time in my story, John, I, I, I had, um, taken on numerous bad choices. You know, um, I was, I was smoking ice, uh, on a regular basis and then meeting her and beginning the affair with her was another fatal choice that ended up with the, uh, the death of my marriage. It almost seemed to me that these relationships, especially the, the third one, but it seemed to me like these relationships were almost an addiction onto themselves because it was like, it was like, they weren't always, they weren't always, they weren't always good for you, but they, they weren't, you couldn't stop. It seemed, did, did you think, do you think of them in terms like that? It, it seems like they ran parallel with the story with your addiction to ice. Yes. That, that's a really good observation. Um, consciously or unconsciously, um, there's an argument there, you know, um, there could have been, I had a very, back in those days, John, I had a very um, minimal capacity to be alone. And, you know, I had this need and this desire to uh, be with company, Uh, whether it was a sexual relationship or, or a monogamous relationship, I needed to be around people. And so the idea of going home and and getting high by myself, um, it just didn't work. And so I, I constantly was getting high and then going out and carousing and, and looking for more action and more stimulation. Right. I guess most of these women, were they, were they mostly into drugs too? Um, the first one was not, um, the, but all, all the, all of the other ones that came after her were, were absolutely in the scene. And it, it, it was really interesting that the whole dynamic were like you, as you just described, I mean, the, the poverty, the poverty and having to go to work and the women got, 
um, it was almost like they were hardened, right? They almost got like, um, it seemed like me, to me that they were very, they, they knew what they needed. They needed money to take care of their family, I guess. And it was kind of a transactional you know, relationship in a lot of ways. Yes. And, and that's the, the women that end up working in the sex industry um, end up being quite annihilated emotionally you know when when a woman chooses to enter into that type of profession in the the end result is that they have to unlearn how to love and i think i wrote that i i use different phraseology in the book when i described that but um the the term um sray kuit it's a khmer term that means broken girl and so prostitutes are often referred to as sray kuits uh, they're broken girls. They have, they have, in order to survive, I think it's a survival mechanism for them. Uh, they, they need to unlearn how to love. And, and it's, it's quite tragic. Can you tell the story now? Cause I can't remember when you actually started getting into the drug business itself. Mm-hmm. So um, as an addict, I'm sure um, some of our listeners will be able to relate to this. When you're using and you've garnered a habit, a serious habit, and you are doing daily ingestion of whatever drug you, you choose, you quickly figure out um, that if you sell, if you become a seller, a dealer, um, you suddenly have this magic mound of free substances. And, and so in the early days when I was using, I, I quickly took inventory of my finances and noticed that, wow, the money is really going out here in a serious way. How can I balance that? And um, yeah, I quickly learned that um, if I become a dealer, um, then basically I'm smoking for free. And so that's, that's how the dealing uh, part came in. And then, you know, when, when I started getting into the smuggling aspect, um, there's a portion of the book where I wrote, I was sitting in a room one evening with uh, a friend of mine who was a heroin addict and he was doing his stuff and I was doing mine and there was a knock on the door and we opened the door and a longtime friend of my friends entered the room and um, the friend that I was with at the time and the man that entered the room, they hadn't seen each other for, for a while. And so it was like this reunion of sorts and they were like, hey, how's it going? How have you been? I've missed you. Haven't seen you. So good to see you. Thanks for coming by. And the friend entered the room and gifted my friend a packet of uh, heroin that he had just smuggled back from um I think it was Thailand or Myanmar. And, uh, you know, it was this, this great gift-giving <laughs> procedure that went on. And my friend that was using heroin at the time immediately opened the package and um, you know, tested out the product, which left me sitting there in the room with his friend. And so I, I started, you know, he was a very colorful figure. So I, I started inquiring about, you know, what, what are you up to? What are you, what are you into? Where'd you get this stuff? And so he went into his stories about his smuggling and um, becoming a mule working for a Nigerian cartel. And um, so we visited that evening and on his way out, he turned to me and he said, Hey, do you know anybody who wants to fly? And that's an invitation to start, you know, get into the smuggling business. And my ears perked up and I immediately answered without thinking, I, I'm interested in flying. I think, I think I'd be really good at that type of thing. <laughs> and, and so thus, you know, I was quickly recruited into the cartel that he was working for. And that's how I made the connections um, 
with with the Nigerian cartel. And that's how I got into the business of muling. Yeah. And your first experience really wasn't a good one. The one that when you had to go to Brazil, Mm -hmm. you want to talk about that? Sure. (laughs) Yeah, that was a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the cartels um, do a very good job in convincing you that everything's going to be okay. Yeah, that's their job. And you you were new to this and you were new to this. And so you weren't really questioning anything that this guy was, was telling you in the beginning, right? He's telling you everything's going to be okay. You don't worry about it. You say, okay. Right. (laughs) I'm going along with it. And and there's, there's a component that we need to look at closely at this point. Um, My drug use had become so intense that I, my concern and care for myself and my concern and care for others had had already started deteriorating. And so I, I went into this, the muling gig, kind of with a, a, a very dangerous sense of apathy. And so, you know, I would meet with my, my jefe, my boss, and uh, he, you know, he would be laying out the blueprints of the job. You know, you're going to be going here. You're going to be staying here for this long. On such and such a day, you're going to meet uh, an associate of ours, and they will give you the package, and you'll bring it back to South Asia. That's it. That's that's the job. And they do a very good job convincing you that you're going to be taken care of. Everything is going to go fine. You don't have to worry. And then, of course, you get over there on the other side of the world, and you're by yourself, and you have no product. And all of a sudden, you find yourself in a dingy hotel room, um, and you've run out of money. And so you place the call to your jefe, your boss, and you send the email and you're asking for funds. You know, hey, I'm out of money here and and the pickup isn't going to happen for another week. Send me the cash. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And so, and it was a real fragile um, existence at that point. And it was dangerous. But, but like I said, I had, at that point, I was plagued with such intense apathy that I was willing to just roll with it. Yeah, you no use that word no a few how. times in the book, apathy. That's a, that's a really good description of, I think, what happens to us when we get into addiction. We just get to this point where, especially when we're, when we're, when we're using like that, um, where it's just like, I don't, I don't care. This is what I do. Um, I, I know, I, I know I was that way. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's a really good description. It's just a, yeah, I've just kind of resigning yourself to the fact that this is my life, you know, this is what I do. And so, um, it's, it's a very dangerous place, very dangerous place. When you get to that point of, of not caring about yourself and not, not caring about your friends who have been with you your entire life and, and then all of a sudden, the relationships start deteriorating. And in that face of deterioration, you don't even care. Very dangerous place. So anyway, you're, that, that, that doesn't go down very well. You're, um, you end up having to uh, sleep at an airport, and you have to borrow money uh, from some people. And you get back, and the boss, I guess, was unhappy that things didn't go down well. But you, you did kind of stand up for yourself, and you told him that you know he, he let you down. I mean, it seemed like that took a lot of guts to to come out like that with the a Nigerian cartel, or but is that maybe that's just part of the apathy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna let it fly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was. I I did have you know just despite being mistreated on on the runs that they would send me on, um, I did ha- enjoy somewhat of a a comfortable uh, relationship with my boss. 
with the guy that was sending me on these runs. And we would speak candidly. But yeah, that time when I came back from the botched uh, trip to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, yeah, I really did let it fly. And I, I think it was a combination of frustration and apathy. Right, okay. You know, that, that here I had been sent on the other side of the world. It was a complete debacle. And, and I came back empty-handed. Uh, I didn't come back to the payday that I was expecting. I, so I returned uh, and went straight back into the, this desperate existence of living in poverty and, and dealing so I can stay high, and, and nothing had changed. And I forgot to mention, by this time, you're not even working at the school anymore. You, you lost that job at the school because uh, you, weren't really, you really weren't engaged with the students and doing what you're supposed to do. And the, the headmaster got these reports about you, you know, not doing what you're supposed to do. So you lost that job and you were really existing. This was your income was selling and, and running drugs. So this guy, he wants to give you some easier assignments. So he sends you to Thailand, I think, to open up bank accounts. Oh, well, he sent me to Thailand um, carrying, carrying a, small, um, a small load of drugs to deliver. And then I returned. Um, and, yeah, I was just kind of sitting around Phnom Penh waiting for the next gig. And uh, he called me and he said, um, I want to meet. So, so we met and... He said, uh, I, think, I think I've got another gig that I want you to, to do for us. And um, it doesn't involve drugs. And I, so my ears pricked up. I said, okay, well, it sounds like a little bit more safer, uh, more safe of a job um, than muling internationally. So I, I inquired about it. And he said, here's what we do. It was a money laundering gig. And they apparently had clients around the world that um, wanted to shelter money in bank accounts in Saigon, in Ho Chi Minh City, which is which is just a it's a six six hour bus ride from Phnom Penh. And uh, he said, what, "What we want you to do is very simple. We will have passports made for you, authentic passports, and you will take those passports and you will go and open bank accounts in Saigon. And uh, that's all you have to do. That's it." And so I said, oh, that sounds pretty easy. And so got on the bus, went to, went to Saigon, and um, opened up a string of bank accounts. So, and then there's going to be a deposit, but you wouldn't know how much that deposit would be, so you didn't know if you were going to get paid. And it turns out that you, you, were, getting, you were getting paid. Um, and then, but then later, uh, I can't remember how this happened, but you ended up saying enough is enough. And you, 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 there was like a $12,000 deposit or something and you kept it all right. I did at that point, you know, I had been working for that particular cartel for well over a year, um, doing their bidding and eking out my existence and trying to keep myself high and trying to keep myself fed and trying to keep them happy. And, um, you know, I had, I had gone on so many jobs and had, you know, found myself completely left alone and destitute. And uh, so by that time, I'd, I'd had enough. Yeah, I, I was at my wit's end with, with the people I was working for. And so uh, they called me one day and said, hey, there's good news. A, a deposit's finally come into one of the accounts. We need you to go pick it up. And I said, great, I, you know, let, let's do it. So I got on the bus and went back to, to Saigon and made the withdrawal. And uh, then coming back to Phnom Penh, I was at the the Vietnamese-Cambodian border, where I sent a text to my boss saying, I have no intention of bringing you any of this money, you know, after, after being left 
on my own in countless times on the other side of the world with no support, no finances, hungry. You know, I'm keeping this money to pay myself for all of those situations that you put me in over the past year and a half. And then uh, what what was kind of interesting about that, that, that boss, it turns out, um, it turns out that you were right. And the cartel kind of demoted that guy, but sent him somewhere else, right? So it was like you didn't have any repercussions from from the Nigerian. They didn't come down on you about that. They they, they pretty much kind of, if I read this right, they said, okay, I think you're right. The guy the guy is just incompetent. So they moved him off, and then you and then a, and another guy came in who was more competent. Yes. That's exactly yeah. what happened. But yeah. before, before you start working for him though, there was a, what I can't, I'm, I might get the sequence wrong here, but there was a really interesting situation where the guy that you were originally selling drugs for, he, okay. You, you knew all these different people, but, but you, you, you knew this one guy, I can't remember his name, but he had really great product. And this general character who you were selling drugs for found out that what a great thing it was. And he wanted like, I can't remember what hundred thousand he wanted a large amount of drugs from this guy. And this guy didn't want to sell to him because he wouldn't sell to Kamir, right? That's correct. Okay. So this is really a weird situation. And you had other people warn you about this one character. I think uh, anyway, not to get involved, but you thought he was okay. So can you tell that story? Cause it was just a, it was just a, this is, this is really pretty um, high stakes stuff here. What happened? Um, if you could just kind of go through that story and this is, but I think this is before you went over to South America for that second for for the second time, right? That's right. Okay, yeah. So if you could That's just kind right. of share about that story. Okay. Uh, at one point, you know, when you're when you're in that world and you your your daily existence depends on uh, buying and selling and using uh, on a constant basis, you meet a lot of colorful characters. And uh, so I'm, I met this one guy. He was also a dealer in the scene in the city there. And he had heard about my, my stunt with the Nigerians, paying myself uh, from the deposit that had come in. So he, he got my phone number and he called me out of the blue one day and he said he wanted to meet. And so I, you know, it's another dealer in the city. So I'll, I'll go and give him some FaceTime. So I met with him and, um, he, it was a, it was a recruiting meeting. He, you know, he, at the end of the meeting, he said, you know, I can, I can beat whatever price you're paying now with whatever you want. So that means more product in my pocket, in my pocket. So I started deriving product from him and I was also deriving product from an, another Khmer uh, at the time. So I was drawing product from two different guys and uh, I, I ended up meeting um, shortly thereafter with my Khmer friend who sampled the product that I was getting from, from the guy from Belgium. And he thought it was great. And it was great. It was, it was supercharged. It was very strong, good product. And he thought it was great. And he said, I would like to buy a large quantity of this from you. And so I then started functioning as a middleman, trying to do, trying to create this deal where I would get these two guys together in the same room and I would take a cut of it. And so um, we, we set up the meeting and um, we sat down in my in in my Khmer friend's little house there, um, and it was um, my Khmer friend, my acquaintance from Belgium, and myself. And um, the deal started to go down, and the guy from Belgium threw out a very large package on the floor for my Khmer friend to taste and sample and purchase. And so we all sampled the product. And um, when it came time to for my Khmer friend to pay 
for for the product he uh it, it was it happened so quickly he, he in in the same moment that he stood up he reached down and swiped up the product and disappeared into his bedroom and shut the door and myself and my my friend from belgium were sitting there you know we were waiting for a couple of minutes and my friend said what what's up where's your friend and i said oh, he's just getting ready you know we're gonna we're gonna go into town and and get some finances to pay you and so you know, two minutes go by four minutes go by five minutes go by and the tension is starting to rise in the room and finally uh we we realized that um the guy had taken off he had jumped out of his bedroom window and was gone with the, with the product and left me there as the middleman <laughs> with with the seller and so that created an enormous uh tense relationship that lasted many many months where um, my friend from Belgium was holding me accountable for the loss of the product. And he, he even created this fantasy that I had staged the whole thing and that I was working in tandem with my Khmer friend and he had ran off. And then days later, he and I had gotten together and split the product or whatever, you know, and uh, that was my, my Belgium friend's perspective of what had gone down. And so he was holding me accountable uh, for, for the loss of the product and, and the loss of uh, non-payment. So, couple, you know, this went on for many months. And then finally, one Sunday morning, um, I remember it well, myself and my girlfriend at the time uh, were just enjoying a, a lazy Sunday morning. Uh, there was incense burning in the house. It was very quiet. It was a beautiful day. And we heard a knock on the door. And um, my girlfriend went and opened the door w without even looking to see who it was. And in walks uh, this guy that I had never, never seen before. And, and he had this real sick and twisted look on his face. And he just walked into my front room there in the living room. And he's just staring at me. And it was very uncomfortable. So I said, who are you? What do you want? And he said, you're Aaron, aren't you? Yeah, who, who the hell are you? And uh, he said, well, and he introduced himself. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm an associate of your, of your friend. And uh, I'm going to call him now. Uh, he, he's been wanting to speak with you about some business business deals that went south. And so he, he called and he placed a one ring call that signaled my friend down on the street to come up. And he came in and uh, they subsequently um, took a pound of flesh from me, you know, um, as, as payment, I guess, um, for what they thought they deserved. And um, yeah, ended up... Uh, causing permanent damage to my finger. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, this is this is a trigger finger. So, you know, in, in the process of getting beat up, they um, spiked my, my knuckle here with a nail. And um, so, you know, it's interesting, just, just on a side note, since that happened, you know, many people have observed this little handicap that I have on my, on my hand. And people have asked me, why, why don't you go and get that fixed? You know, you can have reconstructive surgery on that on that finger. And I came to the decision that I don't think I'm ever going to get this fixed because I, it's a reminder for me. Uh, every time I look at it, it's a reminder of uh, where I ended up and, and uh, the damage, the literal damage that it caused my body, um, all the poor choices that I made. So yeah, this is my permanent trigger finger here. <laughs> so what, your story is similar to other people that I know who went to prison in that it saved your life. Ultimately, ultimately it saved my life. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that you would have died a long time ago if you would have continued on the track you were. And I think you would have, I mean, it was just, um, 
I mean, yeah, it, you're, you're, when you read this book, you'll understand just how, how serious your use was, um, how dangerous the job was, the situations that you were getting into. Um, even your girlfriend was pretty violent. <laughs> you know? So um, it was just, so anyway, so let's talk about the prison. Uh, so, and what happens now, and now we go back to the beginning of the book. You're in the airport, you've got drugs on you, you think that they're well-packed, the dogs won't smell them. But the dog picked up on the smell, right? And and you get busted, and then and then you go to the you go to this prison, and I wonder because this this not a, there wasn't a lot of detail involved about what happened in the prison, but um, a couple of things that I picked up on. First of all, you did get involved with this church group within the prison, and there were a group of people there that served as a community that supported you, and that made and that made a big difference. And, and, and I just wonder, this, this, is, this is where I just need you to kind of fill in all the details about what happened, your experience in that prison, and the transformation that occurred while you were there, if you can talk mm-hmm. about that. Sure. Um, walk, uh, as an expat who has been living in South Asia for, I don't know, about eight or, eight or nine years at that point, um, to suddenly wake up one day and find yourself walking into a Colombian prison. Uh, it was, I described it in the book. It, it wasn't culture shock. It was culture electrocution. Uh, I had no Spanish speaking abilities whatsoever. And so, yeah, and I walked in, into the prison and um, that, that first six months was uh, just stunning. Um, it, it's hard to describe uh, a lot of adjustments, a lot of uh, quickly learning how, how to survive in that type of an environment. You, you premised this conversation, John, by mentioning that prison had saved my life. And it, it indeed did that um, because that is where I eventually became sober, right? And, um, and by the way, that's not easy to do there because there were drugs flying all over the place in that prison. Yeah, there, there was a lot of drugs coming in. Um, and I don't, I can't claim to have any magic recipe for recovery. Uh, I wish I did. I think each person's path to, to a successful recovery is going to be tailored to that specific individual. You know, what works for this guy doesn't necessarily work for this guy. And so what worked for me was making the decision, number one, and, and the decision was enormously difficult to make because you've been living with this addiction. It's like a, an unwanted companion of sorts. And you've been living with this unwanted companion for years and you don't want to let it go. It's part of you. It's an essential part of you in your existence. And to, to actually come to make the decision is an extremely difficult thing to do. In some cases, I think it, making the decision for sobriety is more difficult than actually kicking the drug. And for me, that rang true. So, so making the, the decision in prison to, to finally pursue sobriety was the first step. And then the very next thing that, that I found was essential for my recovery was environmental control. Yes, there were, there were mountains of cocaine in that prison and, and acres of weed. And um, I found that Surrounding myself with uh, sober individuals who had never participated in the addiction lifestyle was uh, a real safe haven for me. And so I quickly, once the decision to, to pursue sobriety 
was made, I quickly threw myself into a very intimate social circle of people who had never experienced a life of addiction, who knew nothing about it, who who had no influences of that kind whatsoever. And had I brought my addiction into that circle, I certainly would have been shunned. You, you know, they would have been like, hey, you know. So so it was a very it was a very positive move uh, on my part to make the decision, and then to also quickly control my environment. So that the people that I was keeping company with, you know, when you're keeping company with a, a certain social group, um, there's there's certain expectations involved, and and if you bring in something foreign to that group that they they have no relationship with, it's it's going to cause trouble. And uh, so um, I knew that if I was going to do it successfully, that I needed to stay within this new social circle uh, and derive off of their their sober living and and their influences and so that really worked for me john um controlling the environment and and who i kept company with in the jail it also seems like that when you're in the prison as harsh as that was and as dangerous as that was and as bad as people there were in there there were also some people there that seemed to care about you it seems like that you, that, that was the one place where it seemed like you had a relationship that was, um, I don't know, it, 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 positive and good for you, you know? Very positive. <laughs> yeah, very positive. Like you weren't getting outside. And, and it's, it's, it's ironic that you would get it in a place like that, but that, that's where you did, it seemed to me. I mean, I mean the relationships that you had, it was the, the most fascinating part about this book, I thought, was the relationships you had with, these, with people, all kinds of different people. You know, and that that was it's it's just so it was so um so interesting. It's even hard to describe, but especially some of your relationships with these women. But most of those relationships weren't ultimately didn't seem to be very healthy or good for you. It was, you were trapped in your addiction. Most of those people that you had relationships with were in the addiction cycle with you. But then when you were in the prison, boy, you had to navigate all these all this this rough crowd, and you found you found a good a good group of people that actually cared about you and who were also, I guess, interested in change and improving themselves. That's right. That's right. And, and, and whatever, whatever crimes that they had committed that had led them to that same place that I found myself in. You're absolutely right. It was a, it was a really sincere group of guys there and it wasn't a large group. It was very intimate. It was me and three other guys. And um, yeah, I would, I ended up spending every waking moment with those guys, you know, and um, taking whatever influence I could from them and, and then thus reciprocating as well, you know, offering a friendship back to them um, in, in the best capacity that I was able to. So you got out after three years, is that right? Three years, two months, 21 days. Okay. <laughs> and what was the reentry like um, leaving that? prison and and i guess did you come back to the united states Mm. um i after after a long legal battle um i i was finally released on parole in october of 2018 and what that meant was is that it was a conditional release so because i was a foreigner in in a foreign country i i was a flight risk absolutely and and so they did not um exonerate me from my sentence but rather released me from the jail with the condition that I serve the remainder of my sentence in Bogota. So that, it, it's kind of ironic. Um, I came out of the jail 
relieved, obviously, uh, restored and sturdy in my sobriety. And um, it, it was ironic in that, you, you know, when you picture people coming out of prison, you picture their families waiting out on the street, right, and, right. you know, the children are jumping up and down and, and someone has flowers and, you know, and I came out and there was none of that. You know, my family was back in the States and whatever friends I had left were back in the States. And um, yeah, I walked out of the jail completely and utterly alone with literally my, all of my belongings uh, slung over my shoulder in a trash bag. And um, I, I eventually rented a room in a, in a little condominium, and I had no connections in Bogota, uh, no family, no friends. And it, it, it ironically ended up being an, an incredible environment for me to be in uh, to write the book. Oh. Um, I you, had you started writing it then? Immediately. Wow immediately when I walked out. Uh, I, I, had, I had written, um, the writing process of this book was very simple. Um, there was very little creative effort involved. After my escapades in South Asia and, and going to jail, I had amassed a large stack of emails and text messages from my phone that had spanned all, all of my movements while I was in the life back in South Asia. And uh, I, I had passport stamps. Um, I had so many passport stamps, they had to sew new pages into my passport. So, so everything, all my experiences were um, incredibly time dated. And so I amassed all of that, all of those resources, and I literally laid it all out on the table and created a linear timeline of everything that had happened and occurred. And so that, that allowed me to um, write the book pretty effortless, effortlessly. I, you know, if I got hung up, I would just refer back to the passport to see, oh, yeah, I was there on this date, and this is what I was doing. And so, yeah, there was very cre a little creative effort in the actual writing process. Uh, it was all laid out for me. Did you write it as sort of therapy? It, 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 was it a therapeutic experience, or you wanted to help people through your story? What was the motivation? Um, that's, that's a really good question, John. My, it, it was a very, um, as, as easy as it was to write the book or at least the first draft. Um, it was also very painful. Um, I remember sitting in that little room in that condo, um, many nights and I would get to portions of the book that involved me reflecting back onto the complete an utterly revolting person that I had been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you talk about that in the book too, by the way. Yeah. And, and so I guess there was a, well, there was, there was a catharsis involved in, in the writing process in that in order to portray the story in an honest and truthful way, I needed to go back and relive many of the horrible things that I had done. And um, it, it was a, a good, long, hard look in the mirror and then having to um, transpose that onto the printed page was, was painful. And I remember crying uh, some nights just out of, out of total embarrassment, like looking back and thinking, my God, how could I have done that? How could I have said those things to that person? You know, how could I have treated that person that way? And um, so, so it, there was a healing process involved in the writing process. And um, I wanted to write it to confront myself and uh, 
all, all of the poor decisions that I had made over the years. And I also wanted to write it with the aim of um, sharing my story with other people that may be trapped in circumstances that they would um, rather rather um, heal from and, and get out of. Yeah, I, I, I hope, I, you know, my hope and prayer with this book is that it, it falls into the hands of addicts or um, loved ones that um, have have addicts in their family or in their social circles that are really struggling with addiction. And uh, hopefully they can read my book and identify with uh, some of the characters in it, um, identify with some of the struggles that people wrestling with addiction experience, and hopefully and ultimately find some sort of healing, uh, some sort of glimmer of hope that, um, that they can cling on to to uh, take, take steps to a more healthy type of living. Well, I hope that you write again. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, as the years go on into your recovery, how how your life evolves from this. And you're such a good writer. It'd be it, I'd love to see you down the road at some time write it write again because your story is going to continue on and on, and you're going to continue to grow, and 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 this and your and what you take from this experience is going to evolve and change your understanding of it will evolve and change too. So that's just, it's just, it's just a, it's a, it's, that's the part about recovery. That's so, so rich. The last thing I want to ask you before we leave is I'm just kind of curious. Have you, have you stayed in touch with those people in Cambodia? Is there anybody uh, there that you've stayed in touch with or was it kind of a clean break after you went to prison? Wow. That, that's another really good question uh, with an interesting answer. Everyone all of the characters that appear in this story and in, in my story, um, all the characters that I was interacting with and doing business with and doing drugs with um, and carousing with, every single character that appears in the book is now either dead oh or, in, or in prison. Oh, wow. And so, and, and that's an interesting fact. When, when you look at the lifestyle of addiction, you don't have many cards to choose from. In, in my case and in my story, everyone um, is either dead or serving long-time jail sentences in South Asia. Oh, wow. How sad. How sad. It's, it's very sad. And, and it just goes to show the severity of that lifestyle. If you, if you embark on, on that type of journey, you're either going to end up in prison or you'll end up dead, or you'll end up in recovery. As you did. As I did. And, and I, you know, I don't know, I, you know, you can call it what you want, God or a higher power or whatever, but, it, you know, um, fate landed me uh, in a pretty good place, you know, in a, in a pretty awful place. Prison is an awful place, but it ended up being where I needed to end up in order to uh, turn things around. Well, thank you again for uh, agreeing to come on and thank you for writing that book. It was such a pleasure to read it. And, you know, books like that, memoirs, you can take so much from those. I mean, this is one of those books that I'll be thinking about a month from now and and something will click with me in my brain about that. I suppose I wish I would have asked him about that or but uh, it's just a, it's just a really, um, really cool book. So thank you for writing it. And uh, thank you for appearing here with me here on Beyond Belief. Right, okay. John, I really had a good time talking with you today. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.